This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards, and today I have here to speak with me Michael R. Oslin. He's the author of a new book called Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific, and that is published by Hoover Institution Press in 2020. Now, just to give you a little bit of background on Michael R. Oslin, um, he's a PhD and is the Payson G. Treat. Distinguished Research Fellow in Contemporary Asia at the Hoover Institution, Stanford University. He's a historian by training and he specializes in US policy in Asia and geopolitical issues in the Indo-Pacific region. Now, he's the author of six books, including his newest one that we're going to talk about today, and also the best-selling The End of the Asian Century, War, Stagnation, and the Risk to the World's Most Dynamic Region. He's a longtime contributor to the Wall Street Journal, National Review, Financial Times, The Spectator, and Foreign Policy. Previously, Oslin was an associate professor at History at Yale University, a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, and a visiting professor at the University of Tokyo. I'm really excited to talk about his book today, Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific. Michael R. Oslin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Jane. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me about yourself and how you came to write Asia's New Geopolitics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific? Well, the the book is a, um, this is a collection of essays, as the title indicates. It's not, uh, I mean, I'm a historian by training, and so I've written books on uh, the history of, of Japanese diplomacy and uh, U.S. cultural relations in Asia uh, and you mentioned a, a book uh, that came out a few years ago called The End of the Asian Century, which was a look at all of the current risk trends that are going on in Asia. Um, but I, I really like the essay form, and I wanted uh, to have the opportunity to put uh, into slightly more permanent uh, permanent condition a, a number of essays that I, that I had written that I liked, uh, that I wanted to update. And it's very different. You know, writing a, a book of essays, each essay, um, you know, gives you a lot of freedom within the format of the essay. But as a, uh, but the book isn't necessarily a book that goes from point A to point B. So this book um, is really the result of uh, a lot of years of of looking at Asia, of dealing with Japan, where I lived, and uh, where uh, the 
the history that I taught the most. Um, but it, it goes back and forth between uh, America in the Indo-Pacific to the, the issues facing Indian women to North Korean nuclear issues, uh, why Japan still seems to be different from the rest of the world. And of course, a lot on China, including um, how China expects the world to treat it and uh, competition we don't often look at, which is between China and Japan. So there's a lot of different um, uh, themes that you can play with because you can just draw all of them out as opposed to trying to make one coherent narrative. And I do think that comes through in the book. Um, Just drawing all these collective themes together, in the introduction you write that an America that remains engaged in the Indo-Pacific and which works with partners to help preserve stability is acting in its own interests as well as the common good. Now, I just want to break this down for a moment. What do you see firstly as America's key interests in the region and how can America act to promote stability in this region and why is this in the common good? Well, I think first of all, what's interesting is that we're in the middle of a um, uh, a generational um, debate over America's role in the region, but more particularly the American relationship with China. Um, you know, America and the People's Republic of China normalized relations in 1979. Uh, and for essentially 40 years, uh, there was one paradigm of, of relations, one goal of relations, which of course was to not only normalize them, but but integrate China into the global economy uh, and global political system and the like, and create a a new relationship between Beijing and Washington, and of course, between Americans and Chinese. Um, I think that that first era uh, is over. And since roughly 2017, when Donald Trump came into office, but really starting a little bit before that, there's been a, a, a fundamental questioning of uh, the relationship with China and America's uh role going forward. Now, that said, I think America has had the same uh, strategy uh, or certainly the same goal in the Indo-Pacific going back to the 19th century, um, going back to the 1840s when uh, we, uh, on the American side, sent our first um, diplomat over to China, Caleb Cushing, to formally open relations. And the goal has always been what today we call maintaining a free and open Indo-Pacific. Uh, that's that's the particular rubric that the Trump administration gave it. Um, but if you look back at the language that was used in the 1840s, in the 1860s, uh, uh, in the, ni- or the turn of the century with the open door notes, uh, the World War II era and after, it's actually always been the same. Um, it's, it's to uh, ensure that all nations have free access within and to Asia, that there is no dominant aggressive hegemon who can set rules uh, to the detriment of other nations. Uh, and that that is not only in the interest of the United States, but is in the interest of the nations uh, of, of the region and indeed of the world. The only difference, of course, has been the degree to which the United States has actively had the ability to achieve that goal. Meaning in the 1840s, we were a very weak nation. We didn't really have have a navy at all to speak of. Um, we weren't able to um, act either to uh, work with with partners or uh, unilaterally, uh, and certainly could not have influenced Japan or China or any of the other uh, states. That changed dramatically in the 1930s, uh, 1940s, and and ever since. Um, 
But since the end of World War II, we've never had a uh, a peer competitor in, in Asia and certainly one that has a different view of the international system. So that is really the, the, the debate and the struggle that America is having today. It has the same interest, openness in Asia. Um, it has promoted stability in the region through alliances and what we call a forward-based presence of military troops and, of course, uh, diplomatic um, uh, diplomatic uh, institutions or diplomatic outposts um, helping set up uh, regional institutions or participating in regional institutions, um, signing trade agreements, having uh, all sorts of different multilateral and bilateral relationships. And all of that since 1945 has helped uh, de- helped Asia develop and allowed Asia to develop so that it has become over the past several decades uh, in the past generation or two, the most vibrant and productive part of uh, the global economy. Um, and I just want to pick up on this a little bit more. You just mentioned now that uh, since World War II that America's had no real peer competitor, you know, in the world, um, but now China is emerging as, you know, this competitor, um, but it's got a different world view. Um, still, the U.S. policy is one of openness in Asia, Um But then there is this idea of China, um, and you quote in the book um, uh, as trying to, like, expand hegemonic power. So you quote of February 2016, the US Pacific Command, Admiral Harry Harris, who said, I believe China seeks hegemony in East Asia. Now, you describe this statement as shockingly blunt, especially as you compare it with the approach previous to that. Can you talk, I'm wondering, about U.S. policy with relation to China um, and whether or not you do think China seeks hegemony in East Asia? Well, I mentioned a little bit uh, of it uh, in the, the, mm. you know, the answer to the last question about what the United States was seeking to do since the 1970s, which was to uh, take advantage of a China uh, that uh, was hesitantly considering opening up to the world under Mao at the the last years of Mao and then after Mao's death, as it emerged from the madness of the Cultural Revolution and everything that had gone before that, such as the Great Leap Forward, um, a China that definitely under Deng Xiaoping was was eager to to interact with the world for its own benefit, to to modernize, to create uh, economic opportunity and the like. Um, And America wanted to take advantage of this. there had been a, a strong debate during the 1960s over this, over whether or not to normalize relations with what was back then what the Americans uh, called Red China. Uh, and under Nixon, of course, was the surprise visit to um, uh, to open up relations first with Henry Kissinger and then uh, President Nixon himself. And every president after that wanted to further this uh, this process of integrating China um, economically. Uh, politically, of course, the early goal of the Nixon administration was to use it uh, somewhat as a pawn in the Cold War vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. Um, but with the, uh, in particular, the um, popping of the Japanese economic bubble at the end of the 1980s, which was accompanied almost simultaneously with the reboot of China's uh, economic reforms under Deng Xiaoping in his famous Southern Tour in 1992, uh, the Americans realized that. Uh, really unexpectedly, China was going to become, was becoming a major economic power. Now, now, obviously, 
dreams of China as a major economic power go back to Marco Polo. Uh, but uh, even even in the 1970s and early 1980s and mid-1980s, no one could have imagined the China that emerged. So America simply, in a way, rode the wave, uh, did everything it could to encourage this. Um, it was good. Well, Wall Street certainly benefited from it. Major manufacturers benefited from it. There was an enormous amount of um, collateral damage at home here because of um, jobs that were lost, hollowing out of industries, reshaping of uh, production chains and the like. But the overall uh, goal uh, was never questioned until it became clear uh, that two things were happening. One, that there was an enormous economic cost in addition to economic benefit of China uh, becoming as powerful as it was, that 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 it was a massive trade deficit, uh, that we had lost so many jobs, that we were in debt, obviously, to China uh, in, in terms of current accounts and the like. Um, but secondly, that the China that developed by being integrated into the global political and economic community was not the China that America hoped would would emerge, which would be a more cooperative, if not tolerant, possibly even moderately liberal China, certainly not going to be a democracy like the United States or Great Britain or Australia, but uh, would be uh, a, a country that was certainly not as authoritarian, totalitarian as it had been under Mao. And by 2015, 2016, it was pretty clear that we had instead uh, helped enable a China that uh, had very different views of the global system, different views of uh, the way that it would act vis-a-vis uh, -vis its partners, whether that was um, taking intellectual property, um, espionage, um, trying to drive other uh, economic sectors or companies out of economic sectors and the like. And so the calculus, I would say, on both sides in Washington, D.C., the Democrat and the Republican side, was that something had to change. A lot of it coalesced with looking at how China had become a major military power and and that it was indeed seeking hegemony, which, which we really never wanted to talk about, because if the goal of the United States was a, a free and open Indo-Pacific, then a China that was seeking hegemony would be a China that was an adversary. And so this is still the debate that's going on today. And I think that's interesting. And you do write in the second chapter about how judged retrospectively, um, the liberal West has misjudged China's integration into the global world order and that there are consequences of this. Um, I'm not sure if you want to expand on that or if perhaps you can also talk a little bit about, um, you just mentioned um, espionage and the way the mechanisms that China's used, you know, now that it is more integrated in this new world order of, um, you know, in sort of spreading its worldviews? I think it's very important because um, of the, the strength and power that China has in global markets, in political fora, um, through uh, information services and the like. Um, it's very clear that under Xi Jinping, China is not liberalizing. Uh, in fact, it is re-centralizing power under the party. Uh, it is, uh, in essence, doubling down on the ideological competition with the West or, or with liberal uh, democracies, wherever they happen to be. It is using the elements of state power, whether that's the 
the espionage uh, policies of the security services, whether it's the influence campaigns and the propaganda campaigns of the United Front Work Department, whether it is trying to suborn international institutions uh, such as the World Health Organization and others to essentially undermine the legitimacy, uh, if not the authority of uh, liberal democracies and an open rules-based system. And we toss the term around a lot of rules-based system, and yet there are certain patterns of behavior that um, most countries in the world have have signed up for, uh, some because they're too weak to do otherwise, and others because they know that it's in in their interests. But in essence, the, the sole goal of the Communist Party of China is, of course, to maintain power. But in order to do that as an authoritarian uh, uh, body, then it, it cannot, it, it does not feel comfortable living in a world in which liberal democracy is in the ascendant. In essence, what the party is trying to do is make the world safe for Chinese style autocracy. Uh, and that is done through controlling technologies, through controlling information, uh, through um, what we call elite capture, essentially trying to suborn the elites of different countries through, through different mechanisms. Some is outright bribery, some is flattery, some is uh, granting access and the like. Um, of course, making corporations play by Chinese rules, um, groveling uh, for access to the Chinese market. Um, in essence, surrendering intellectual property uh, for the hope of maintaining their role in, in that market. Um, there's the military side of it in the South China Sea and, and elsewhere, uh, the expansion of control over critical sea lanes and air lanes and, and the like. Um, all of that is designed, of course, to um, create strategic space for the Communist Party. Uh, and, and I think we really do have to... Um, listen carefully to what it says and listen to its reliance on ideology. Uh, in the West, we were uncomfortable with ideology. We think it really didn't matter after the Cold War. But if you look at what Xi Jinping in particular, since he came to power in 2012, has done, it has been to revitalize ideology and an ide ideological competition between China and uh, the, the liberal democracies of the world, whether they're in Asia, Africa, the Middle East, Latin America, or, or North America, it doesn't matter. Um, and so this, this is what I call the, the new China rules um, uh, of how the world should essentially adopt Chinese positions vis-a-vis -vis, uh, sovereignty in the South China Sea, vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, technological issues, um, security, uh, and, and very importantly, the influence campaign. So the, this is all uh, problematic, of course, for liberal democracies because it is attempting to undermine their legitimacy uh, to show that an illiberal system, an autocratic system, a system which um, does not respect individual rights, gender rights, uh, civil rights, religious rights, and the like, is better, according to the, 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 the party's view, is better than a system that is pluralistic and allows for all that that messiness. Um, and this, this is a great challenge uh, to the West, um, which of course has not dealt with uh, the coronavirus pandemic that began in Wuhan, China, uh, has not dealt with it nearly uh, as well as it should have um, with uh, economic uh, stagnation in a lot of democratic countries, uh, with a, a societies that often uh, have deep divisions within them. 
Um, so democracy, liberalism, pluralism is all messy and difficult. Uh, right now we're in a very uh, problematic time. Um, but the answer is not the type of autocracy that the Chinese Communist Party wants to prove to the world is better than what we have in the West. And I think that's a really uh, interesting point. So um, just as you just said, uh, this sort of messiness of liberal Western um, democracy and pluralism, and it's, you know, being called to confront uh, this revitalization of ideology of Xi Jinping since 2012, and it, I think it does seem to be picking up. Now, you write that when looked in totality, this Chinese challenge, it's political, economic, and military, and so must America's response be. Can you talk a bit more about this, um, contextualizing it in the present day? What do you see as a necessary response by the Biden administration? Well, it, it, the Biden administration will be the proof, uh, at least in the short term, of whether we have a new consensus in America on China. The rhetoric seems to be that the answer is yes, that everyone recognizes that we're in a strategic competition with China, um, whether it's uh, entirely adversarial uh, or partly adversarial. It's certainly at least partly adversarial. It may, it may in fact be almost entirely adversarial, except on a few very small uh, issues uh, or, or a small number of issues like climate change where, where China wants, you know, the, the party would certainly like to see blue skies over Beijing. Um, but on, on fundamentally almost everything else, uh, there is a, a uh, if not only a competition, actually an adversarial stance between the two. Um, you know, in some ways, uh, so, so first of all, we have to see which way the Biden administration really goes. Does it, does its actions live up to its rhetoric? I mean, just this week, its first week in office, it sent, uh, or it allowed a U.S. Uh, aircraft carrier group to go, uh, make a freedom of navigation operation in the South China Sea. Um, that's, that's very important. Um, Will it continue to do so? That was probably already on the books. Um, they could have shut it down. Uh, but, there, but, you know, there's certainly going to be questions about how the Biden administration approaches Huawei, uh, whether it allows access to America's telecommunications markets, its power grids, um, whether uh, the Biden administration prosecutes uh, anti-espionage operations as uh, strongly as the Trump administration did, whether it tries to blunt the propaganda of the United Front Work Department and the Confucius Institutes and the like, or whether they seek to tamp down uh, tensions between uh, the two countries. Um, so the, the tools that the United States has are narrowing. Um, there's no question about it. Uh, I don't think that they're very different than what they've been for a long time. First of all, it starts with alliances, uh, with partners who share uh, at least some of your values and that you work with in Asia, that you've worked with for a long time in Asia, Japan being at the top of that list, Australia. Um, uh, uh, Singapore has been a partner, not not a formal treaty ally, but a partner. Um, South Korea, uh, most, which is, of course, mostly focused on North Korea, but South Korea is a partner. India is a growing strategic partner. South Korea, of course, a formal ally. Uh, but India is a growing strategic partner. It begins with alliances and partnerships uh, who uh, attempt to set 
rules and norms of behavior. And that's why I think it was very important that the Trump administration revitalize the quad mechanism. And I certainly hope that the Biden administration will continue that. Um, after that, uh, there are, are important tools of uh, multilateral agreements. Uh, first of all, participating in and joining multilateral organizations, uh, and then signing multilateral agreements, including trade agreements. And that was an area where the Trump administration backed off. Uh, I think it was a mistake. And I think that there is an opportunity for the Biden administration to go back uh, and make uh, the free trade uh, relationships, uh, strategic relationships, and, and that will benefit the United States. But that also creates a community of action around um, commonly shared uh, principles. Uh, I think there needs to be uh, work among the democracies that they need to unite, uh, and they need to um, uh, work together to uh, to basically counter the Chinese propaganda narrative, to counter the intimidation uh, to uh, uh, do what the Trump administration did in its last days to call out genocide against the Uyghurs uh, in Xinjiang, uh, to talk about not accepting uh, Chinese goods that are made with slave labor, uh, which we now know is, is uh, we've known for a long time, but we have even more evidence now that it's central. Uh, the democracies have to work together. Um, there is a, a, an initiative uh, from the Halifax International Security Forum uh, where I'm, I've been involved with, but uh, it's a, a um, an initiative to have the democracies stand together uh, on China to to make clear that we will not self censor uh, as a democracies. We will not uh, punish those who take different views on China. That we will help those in Hong Kong. We will do what we can to help those uh, in Xinjiang. Um, the democracies need to stand together on Taiwan. There's an enormous amount to do. All of that said, as I mentioned, the tools uh, are there, but but they're they're getting um, weaker in some ways. Uh, the, the, demo- the democracies need to have vibrant and robust economies. They need to cooperate. They need to be at the cutting edge of technological innovation, uh, including five G and what will come after that, six G, uh, on artificial intelligence. Uh, there needs to be alternatives to. Uh, the areas where the party in China is putting enormous emphasis on dominating uh, the the coming technologies, which will then dominate the global economy. And if you dominate the global economy, then you're able to dominate global economics and security follows. So the tools need to be sharpened. They need to be employed and utilized. But in order to do that, the nature of the challenge has to be clear that it is a challenge uh, that Beijing itself says it's a challenge and that we can't self-delude into thinking that uh, it's going to be going back to pre-2016 business as usual, because even back then, it wasn't the business as usual that we thought it was. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Right, and you, just picking up on this again, uh, you write that uh, Beijing expects the West to change how it thinks and acts engaging in self-censorship and even punishing our own workers in the West for offending China. 
And this, this strength comes from a bare-knuckled abusiveness, which may be combined with an unexpected sense of insecurity. Can you explain somewhat this tension of abusiveness, which is combined with insecurity? Well, yeah, I, I think some of it comes from uh, a sense of, of recognizing um, uh, just how far behind China remains uh, in, in many issues. Uh, you know, um, certainly environmental issues where uh, there's there's terrible environmental pollution um, in um, things uh, like um, trust in government. Um, certainly there, you know, we need to get, I think, better information from inside China. Um, but we, we know that there's great distrust of the party, um, great resentment at um, the, the uh, corruption in the party. Of course, that was the centerpiece pardon me, the centerpiece of Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign, at least part of what he was doing, as well as consolidating his own political power. Um, there, there's, there's a recognition uh, that China, while having made extraordinary strides over the past 30 years uh, and, and essentially vaulting to the, the world's second most powerful nation, some might even argue the most powerful nation, uh, that it remains behind in per capita GDP. It certainly uh, cannot trust its own people. If it did, it would be a much more open society. Uh, and, and so there are enormous weaknesses uh, that, have, that are rippling through Chinese society, even as macroeconomic the macroeconomic growth has slowed dramatically over the past decades. Capital has flown out of China, uh, and and so on and so forth. Um, at, that's combined with uh, a a um, uh, you know I mentioned an aggressiveness um, because uh, on the one hand China is still far larger and more powerful than any of its neighbors, and it's reverting to uh, historical form in some ways and in, in, uh, intimidating and bullying them to get them to adopt um, preferences of Beijing in, in you know, whether it's uh, territorial issues or, um, or uh, propaganda issues uh, and the like. Um, but also a, a sense perhaps that um, time may not fully be on, on China's side, that, that the, the problems inside the country, including an aging population, political dissatisfaction, environmental pollution, the, the question really of just how innovative the country is. Um, and I think that's still to be decided, uh, just how innovative the country is, um, that this may be the best time uh, in order to try to gain certain strategic objectives and therefore uh, it does it with with a very heavy hand. So some of it is um, fear, some of it's insecurity, some of it's uh, overconfidence, some of it is a historical reversion to uh, to the norm. But it's clear that the China of 1980, 1990 could never have acted in this way. This is the result of a China that has developed dramatically over the past 30 years. Uh, and one, because of the way that it's acting, uh, we can see right away that it's still, if we can put it this way, is not comfortable in its own skin, that it has not gained the confidence to act in a way that upholds the uh, the foundations of the very international system that allowed it to become so uh, rich and so powerful. Now, I think we, we can come back to China in a little bit. Um, I want to make sure we have time also to discuss on it, some of the other uh, uh, important players in the um, Indo-Pacific, 
Um, for example, you write about Kim Jong-un and whether or not he can control his nukes. Now, this is a different potentially aggressive threat also in the region. Now, I admit I was very naive when I read this about how um, just how fragile handling nuclear weapons are. Can you explain the danger not just of Kim Jong-un having access to nuclear weapons but the danger of their existence in North Korea? Yeah, the, the point of that uh, essay was to um, to say that if North Korea is going to have nuclear weapons, uh, which which they will, I'm, I, I think, um, you know, they have them. And so the question is, will they keep them? Will they, will, they, will they give them up? Is there any deal that can make them give them up? And it's very hard to see one. Um, but the point is, is that if we're going to live in a world with North Korean nuclear weapons, the great danger is not that... Um, Kim Jong-un's going to wake up one morning and say, you know what, I want to nuke LA or I want to nuke um, Washington, D.C. It's rather that keeping nuclear weapons safe is an extraordinarily difficult job. Um, in, in America and in Russia during the Cold War and after, we've had dozens and dozens of nuclear accidents. We've almost gone to war. Satellites have um, sent information that was misinterpreted by early warning systems. Uh, we've had uh, bombers drop nuclear weapons that have disappeared on American soil. Uh, we've had missiles explode. We've had so many different accidents. And that's with the United States pouring billions and billions of dollars into what they call nuclear surety, nuclear safety, and the Russians uh, largely doing the same thing. Uh, and in many ways, we we escaped a, a, um, a nuclear catastrophe only by by luck. And so the real danger is that North Korea has uh, none of the mechanisms that we know of to keep their nuclear weapons safe, uh, that, that they don't train their people uh, the way that we do, that they don't have uh, the protocols for handling nuclear weapons safely, um, that they don't have the crisis uh, response teams if something goes wrong with a missile uh, or or a launcher or something like that. Um, also that we don't know how they are going to maintain what's called command and control. Uh, we have a very, very rigorous multi-step process of command and control. Um, and we have absolutely no idea uh, in North Korea how it's going to work. Who has authority to take a weapon out of storage? Uh, will it always be kept on a missile? Who gets to launch? Who gets to turn the key? How will they interpret something like a B-52 flying over North Korean territory? Um, so uh, there is so much to worry about that goes uh, that happens before there's even a crisis from day one to day 1,000 of just keeping weapons safe. And so that article was was really to say that that's what we need to fear. Uh, and uh, as crazy as it sounds, if North Korea is going to have nuclear weapons, then at some point, even as we're trying to get them to denuclearize, at some point, we may have to think about ways of ensuring that those weapons are safe, because the last thing we want is one of them launching or exploding and causing a major international crisis. I see. And so I'm interested then in what do we know about North Korean nuclear cap capacities and what don't we know? Uh, we, we, we don't know very much at all. Um, we know that they are moving uh, increasingly. Uh, so they have 
Uh, mobile missiles, they prefer mobile missiles. Um, so those are missiles on you know, trucks that can carry them around. They're not in silos like, uh, like we have uh, the United States ground-based missile force. Um, they're moving to what are our liquid uh, fuel, I'm sorry, solid fueled missiles, uh, which means that they can always be fueled. They don't have to be fueled with liquid, which is a much more dangerous and time consuming process. Um, of course, they, they are apparently about to unveil a uh, submarine launch ballistic missile. Um, they've had some testing, but there's indications that they're going to launch that now. But we really have no idea what the command and control is. We don't know if uh, it's only Kim Jong-un who can say launch missiles or if he's delegated authority. Uh, we don't know if they're going to have what we call the two-man rule, which means that there must be two launch officers uh, over control of any missile. Um, we have no idea if they are going to um, have an early warning system that is reliable. Our early warning systems, the Soviets' early warning systems have failed uh, in the past uh, during the Cold War. Um, so, so we really don't know anything about how safe the bombs are, how safe the rockets are, and how safe the procedures are for launching them. It's extremely concerning. So do you think we can make any predictions with regard to whether Kim Jong-un can control his nukes? Well, I think we have to assume that um, uh, uh, there's going to be an accident at some point. Uh, the question is what type of accident, what actually happens. Um, you know, a, 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 a warhead detonating on North Korean territory. Is this what uh, he uses uh, as an excuse because he can't admit that it happened? So it happened because of, uh, uh, you know, problems on the North Korean side. Um, is this uh, something that he uses as an excuse to charge Japan or South Korea or even the United States with uh, launching a, a weapon against him? Uh, and and therefore has to retaliate. I mean, this is really um, we we just we don't know. Uh, first of all, the type of accident that can happen, and we don't know um, how he will respond. I think, given the history of the United States, the history of of Russia and the Soviet Union, you have to assume that at one point or another, with a large enough missile uh, and and nuclear uh, capability, um, that an accident is going to happen. Um, and we just have to hope that it's something that is, um, that is manageable, uh, and that if it does happen, it is the, the most minimal, uh, accident that, that indeed takes place. Hmm. It's certainly an issue for concern. Um, I want to turn now to your essay on India's missing women. Can you first explain, uh, perhaps give a bit of context who and what are India's missing women? Uh, I wrote that essay. It was it was more of a journalistic style of essay um, uh, because I was meeting uh, when I was doing research for my my last book, The End of the Asian Century, um, uh, in India. Uh, as I was doing research on India's politics and security and, and economics and the like, I was meeting uh, all these extraordinarily interesting professional women uh, in India each of whom had a different story uh, about um, the challenges they faced. And, and then I put that together with what I was learning uh, about the economics um, in which um, Indian women who make up a, a, almost a majority, I think it's majority, uh, of those going to school and certainly um, in, in some of the top universities are a majority of those going, nonetheless are expected to drop out of the workforce when they get married. And most of the marriages uh, are still arranged, though there are some 
love marriages. In fact, I, I uh, talk about one woman that I met who was in a, in a, a love arrangement. Um, but um, it was, it was fascinating to, to um, see that these were uh, highly educated, incredibly accomplished professional women, each of whom was struggling with social and cultural restrictions um, that essentially mandated that number one, they, they marry whom their parents picked. Uh, they move wherever that husband's going to be, whether it's, you know, near their work or not, that most of them will, will leave uh, the workforce. And that all of this was a drag uh, for India's economy, for its society, uh, that, that in India that wants to be a major global leader, uh, and wants to be a, a truly a great power, uh, cannot do so if the talents and the energies of half its population uh, are not utilized to the fullest. And so then how can India work towards greater inclusion and equality for its women? Well, it's a difficult, um, it, it's a difficult question um, because a lot of it is cultural. A lot of it is uh, traditional. Uh, it's certainly not the place uh, of anyone outside of India, uh, you know, to come in and, and tell them how to uh, organize and arrange their country. I think it's it's really dependent on, um, you know, uh, not only uh, the Indians sort of collectively, but Indian women to make to make this case. One thing that has pushed this issue to the forefront have been horrific um, crimes against against Indian women uh, that have made the press, you know, uh, terrible rapes, murders, honor killings, uh, and the like, um, and that finally seemed to have reached a tipping point um, in order to to change now the laws uh, to create courts that are uh, actually staffed by Indian female judges and. Um, uh, uh, with with female attorneys and and so really to be much more sensitive to these these uh, terrible crimes when they uh, when they take place, um, uh, but also you know these other taboos have to be broken about uh, women leaving the workforce uh, and uh, then you know really this this question about um, uh, you know uh, the marriages and and the choice of the choice of marriage. Um, so basically, what what I do in this article is. Uh, or in this essay is is um, relate the stories of three different women that that I met, um, different uh, religions, different castes, uh, different types of uh, of um, uh, marital or or premarital arrangements, you know, meaning um, um, uh, engagements and the like, uh, and and just sort of give give the story from their own words uh, about what they face, but then try to put it into this larger context, which is to say that you know if there is to be change, um, then you know it's going to have to come from the inside. It's certainly not going to come uh, from any of us. And what do you see then as the consequences of a failure to con- this of this continued differential treatment? And I, for, at least from a Western liberal perspective, I think we could describe it as gender discrimination. Um, yeah, I, I mean, so there's uh, the discrimination is, you know, mm. we, we call it discrimination because we have the, you know, the presumption of equality under law. And then, and then if it's not carried out, then, uh, then we see it as discrimination. I mean, uh, you know, under, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, you know, a specialist in the Indian legal system. Um, certainly there is, there is, uh, equal, uh, civil rights uh, for uh, for women, um, but there's also you know millennia long tradition and 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 culture, uh, and 
whether or not we uh, agree agree with it, I think we have to recognize, you know, that um, cultures and societies organize themselves according to their own lights and and not the lights uh, always of of the West. Um, I think you know we certainly have a role to play in offering uh, an alternative, and that's certainly what I would say in relation to China as well. Um, and and this, by the way, I should I should mention this this question of gender equality. Um, uh, of opportunity for women and the like. This is not only an Indian question. This is throughout, first of all, it's throughout the world, but of course it's, it's very prevalent. It's very noticeable, uh, in throughout all of the Indo-Pacific throughout all of Asia. So I, I just happened to write this particular story, uh, because I was very interested in it, but it, it's an issue in, in every country. Um, you know, in Japan, for example, women, uh, there, there've been, you know, uh, all female colleges going back to the mid 1800s, uh, when Japan began modernizing, uh, women make up a majority of those in the universities and Tokyo over the past decade or so has, has made a policy priority of attempting to ensure that women, uh, stay in the workforce and, and account for a greater part, uh, of the workforce, um, but that is, you know, in the light of uh, a condition, you know, in some ways not that different from India, where women were expected to drop out of the workforce once they got married and had kids. So again, all I think if you look at all of these societies compared to decades ago, they're much better. Uh, but they have what we would consider to be a long, uh, a long way to go. Uh, and so for uh, for Indians, the way I tried to. The context I tried to put it in was the question of becoming a great power in the world, that if you really want to be a great power, if you want to be influential in the world, um, first of all, you can't do it, again, if the energies and talents of half of your citizens are are not allowed uh, to to fully flower and to, um, to take their place. I mean, what's interesting is you have some... You know, leading Indian politicians are women. Um, uh, several of the the um, uh, closest to home here, several of the the most recent ambassadors to the United States have been women. Um, there have been women uh, secretaries of defense and uh, leading, uh, or, you know, um, ministers of defense or leading cabinet officials have been women. Uh, of course, Indira Gandhi was the prime minister uh, for uh, you know long periods in the nineteen sixties and seventies until her assassination in the uh, the 1980s. Um, in uh, her daughter-in-law, Sonia Gandhi, was the head of the Congress Party for decades. Um, you have very powerful Bollywood stars uh, like uh, Aishwara Rai and others. Um, so it, it, there's this interesting uh, playing out in India of extraordinarily uh, public and prominent and powerful women against the backdrop of hundreds of millions of women who have almost no opportunity to marry whom they want get the jobs that they want, live where they want, uh, or, or, or live how they want. And that is certainly something that is not unique to India, but not all countries have the opportunity to be, uh, to be a, a, a great power in the world. And if India wants to be, then I think it's going to find that path much easier if the conditions under which many of India's missing women are laboring, if those conditions change. Yeah, I think that will certainly be interesting to see if the gender dynamic does shift, um, whether and when India does become a major global player. Now, your next two chapters in the book are focus on Japan. Um, firstly, Japan itself, and then the China and Japanese relations. So, just firstly, looking at your chapter on J- Japan's eightfold 
sorry, eightfold fence. You quote a mid-19th century phrase which describes a weakening empire with increased Western imperial encroachment. Now, I'm not going to try and pronounce it in Japanese, but in English it is troubles within, dangers without. Mm -hmm. How does this phrase reflect Japan's traditional domestic political framework and its engagement with the rest of the world? Right, the phrase Nayu Gaikan. Well, that that is, um, yeah, that's less, I think, um, something that that holds throughout Japanese history it was this particular moment uh, in the mid 1800s when uh, the Western powers uh, were uh, encroaching on Japan at the same time that the uh, socioeconomic system was shifting because of the rise of a monetized economy, which the samurai uh, were not able to participate in. So there, there, this was a particular moment where it seemed that there, there were dangers uh, coming from the outside and there were problems uh, inside. And this, this was going to threaten Japan's stability. And, and so it was one of the reasons for uh, adopting um, uh, the modernization uh, policies that the Meiji government uh, ultimately did. Um, I, I think the the bigger uh, point about the eightfold fence, which comes from an ancient Japanese poem of the uh, of the uh, eighth uh, century, is that Japan has always set itself apart in some way from the world, even when uh, it it was engaging uh, deeply with the world as we've come to expect since the Meiji Restoration of, of 1868, that Japan uh, has still chosen certain boundaries against the world uh, in order to maintain its own social coherence and social stability. What we would see as uh, choosing inefficiency or choosing what seem to be, in fact, some pre-modern types of, of uh social arrangements. Um, but instead, they're very consciously, I think, very consciously chosen, or if I can put it this way, they're consciously unconsciously chosen, meaning it's, you know, they're, they're, these are deeply embedded in Japanese society. Um, but the the choice to overturn them, that conscious choice is is avoided, as opposed to saying we're you know, affirmatively going to do something we've been doing for centuries. Instead, what it's saying is we're affirmatively not going to change. And so what we have basically written off on the Japanese side uh, as an unwillingness to completely modernize, to open up all of its borders, for example, or to adopt Western style, um, uh, you know, Wild West capitalism uh, with with extraordinary income inequality uh, for, um, you know, that that rewards, you know, incredible risk-taking entrepreneurs and the like. Um, those are things that Japan has accepted to a, a, a much lower degree. Um, certainly the open borders, um, the, the capitalism is, is much more um, restrained in, in certain ways. There's, there's a much more hierarchical, um, uh, hierarchical uh, organization uh, of capitalist activity and, and still a, a pretty hefty role for the state. Um, there is a, uh, uh, compared certainly even to a period as recent as the 1980s, um, much more hesitation on the part of Japanese to be studying abroad, living abroad, um, uh, and the like, that there is, uh, in essence, borders that are maintained between the world and Japan because it's in Japan's in interest um, 
to maintain uh, cultural stability, cultural unity, ethnic unity, coherence. Uh, and if you look then at, at the results, you know, what we would say, well, it's been a stagnant economy for, for 30 years or so. Um, from the Japanese perspective, there's also much less um, income inequality. Um, for the most part, although this is this has actually changed, um, there was job security, and and now even though uh, I think it's forty percent or more of the workforce is on temporary work, it's also not temporary work that is that is um, as uh, as um, uncertain or or um, uh, as uh, capricious as as it is in in other parts of the world. Um, so. We would say that Japan is inefficient in many ways, or we would say that, you know, it really never fully grasped modernity. Uh, and I, I think that from the Japanese perspective, it made, again, very, very conscious choices as to how far it would open up, um, what the benefits of not uh, fully opening up were, uh, and then also that it recognized that there were costs, um, but that those that those were costs that were accepted uh, for a, a greater social goal, you know, less less economic growth to some degree. It's not that Japanese said, look, we only want 1% growth, but, but less economic growth because you have a different type of economic system uh, than what we see uh, in the West where, uh, you know, employees are laid off right and left, where uh, certain industries are hollowed out because um, it's opened up to international competition as a being as opposed to being protected. Um, so this was really the, the the point I was trying to make in the uh, in, in the piece, which was uh, Japan will always be a part of the world, but it's going to be a part of the world on its own terms. And I think that's very interesting. So taking account of this somewhat divergent and contrasting model, do you feel then that Japan has a responsibility to the global community, even? In its in light of its difference, well, responsibility. It certainly it certainly um, uh, lives up to a lot of its responsibility already uh, in terms of um, uh, its activities uh, and support for international organizations. Um, it has pretty dramatically overhauled its uh, security. Um, uh, security policies under former Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, who left office uh, last year after uh, eight years uh, at the helm, um, uh, it, it it cooperates more uh, with the United States. It cooperates with India and Australia, uh, the UK, and other countries. Um, it uh, has an enormous amount of, of overseas aid. It actually has a more successful Belt and Road program uh, through the Asian Development Bank uh, than the Chinese do through their uh, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank uh, or uh, or the Belt uh, the, the formal Belt and Road program. So it, it does an enormous amount uh, in, globally, um, but it also does it uh, again on on its own terms, as uh, you know, in some way as every as every country does. Um, and it, it is not as influential as it was in the 1980s uh, and, you know, the early 1990s. Uh, in some ways, it's not as powerful because of the, the relative growth of, of China uh, and, and other countries, including India. But Japan is still the third, maybe fourth largest economy in the world. It has a very uh, modernized, powerful military. It's using it more for, uh, you know, helping uh, create communities of interest in Asia for um, 
maritime uh, security and, and freedom of navigation and the like. It plays an important role uh, at the UN and in, in these other international organizations. It, it really, I think, uh, basically does um, a lot of what it can do. Um, but but at the same time, when we sit, sit there and we expect Japan to have this sort of complete, uh, you know, um, uh, open, uh, you know, capitalist style economy and, and entrepreneurialism. And, uh, and we, we wonder why it doesn't have the same type of tech startup sector and the like, again, because there, there is more of an emphasis on, um, social stability. There's more of an emphasis on, um, social hierarchies that, that keep relations internally in Japan very, um, very clearly, articulated as opposed to the the much more uncertain and, and messy uh, things that we see both in Europe and the United States. Now, your next essay focuses on uh, Sino-Japanese relationships, um, and you describe this as Asia's other great game. Can you talk more about this? Yeah, I just, you know, uh, briefly, not to, to spend too much time on it, but I, I just found it interesting that we always see, uh, we always think about in the United States that, you know, the, the Sino-US competition is the great game in Asia now that, that, you know, it's all about Beijing and Washington. And the fact is, is that China and Japan have been competing in Asia for centuries, in fact, millennia. Um, they're, they're the two, you know, you put India to the side as uh, being, you know, on the, on the other part of the other side of the Indo-Pacific, and also with being a subcontinent with its own sets of interests, uh, and in, with Pakistan and, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, um, Bangladesh and the other countries around it, it, it's really, you know, Japan and China that have been the two most powerful countries in Asia for, uh, centuries. They have always sort of traded places, one being powerful, one being less powerful. Now, both of them are very powerful, very wealthy. I mean, Japan's uh, per capita GDP is is much greater than China's, a factor of, of at least three, maybe four. Um, uh, you know, Japan being a uh, obviously an, an open democracy with a, a democratic model of, of both governance uh, as well as development, China having an authoritarian model under the, the Communist Party. Um, they're, they're both uh, basically competing to win the hearts and minds uh, in Asia. Uh, and they've been doing so for not just decades, but for centuries. And so, yes, the United States-China um, competition is central uh, to what's going on in Asia today. But we shouldn't forget that the China-Japan competition, I just mentioned one of it, by the way, the development competition of Belt and Road versus Japan's Overseas Development Assistance and the Asian Development Bank, that's also ongoing. Uh, that as much as there are Chinese ships going around the South China Sea and East China Sea, there are Japanese ships, uh, naval ships and Coast Guard ships uh, as well, that Japan is a member of all of these major international uh, well, more importantly, all of the major regional organizations such as East Asian Summit and APEC uh, and and the like and, a, and an observer at ASEAN because it's attempting to make sure that those institutions are uh, adopt openness and transparency and uh, equality versus a Chinese model, which would be to dominate them. So uh, it, it's a competition that I think is going to go on forever uh, and because the two cannot leave Asia. And it's, it's simply one that we need to be aware of and one that we actually can use to our benefit if you look at something like the Quad, where we can work with a Japan that has very close relations with India, very close relations with Australia, um, to offer alternatives to the Chinese model.
And so then should the US be involved in this Sino-Japanese political relations or should it focus its global strategy on the Indo-Pacific? Um, well, the answer is yes. I mean, to, to some degree we're involved because Japan is a, is our most important ally in Asia and we are going to um, always be um, uh, working with it on uh, its relations with China. And in fact, the new defense secretary, uh, Lloyd Austin, uh, just reaffirmed, according to his Japanese counterpart, uh, that the Senkakus, the disputed islands between China and Japan, are indeed covered under Article 5 of our alliance. So um, we are automatically involved by being an ally uh, of Japan. Uh, But we want to be involved with Japan in the greater Indo-Pacific because Japan as a democracy uh, offers a model uh, and, and offers a a beacon uh, of hope. I'll just say that when I lived uh, in Japan for four years and when I traveled throughout Asia, um, I rarely, in fact, never heard people talking about they wanted to be like China. What they wanted was, you know, China. they wanted wealth and they wanted to trade with China and get the benefits from China that they could. Um, but no one wanted to be like China. Instead, over and over, I would hear, we want to be like Japan. We want blue skies and we want clean waters because Japan cleaned up its environmental problems. Uh, we want the freedom to, to live how we want, even, even though they knew that Japan was struggling with, um, uh, with stagnation or what we saw as stagnation for a long period. So uh, that, that's something where we should be involved to provide this model and this alternative um, uh, for development and for society in Asia with partners like Japan Australia and India. Then on the question of American strategy in the Indo-Pacific, what do you see as fundamental? Well, again, I think I'd go back to where we started uh, this mm-hmm. this question of the free and open Indo-Pacific. Um, we, in order to do that, you have to be uh, credible. You have to actually have uh, the, um, the assets that you can use, be those military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, cultural assets. I think we should be uh, dramatically upping our cultural game uh, in Asia. Um, starting in the 1990s at the end of the Cold War, uh, we decided to drop a lot of our, our cultural programming and our cultural presence uh, in Asia. Um, and we need to we need to bring that back because we need to be showcasing um, the, the benefits of having a liberal society. Look, that's hard right now. There's a lot going on uh, throughout uh, liberal democracies, no, not least in America, that is very worrisome and it's, it's very problematic. But if you look at the long run and you look at the bases of, uh, of, the, um, of the societies, there's still no question that you, you, know, you would want to emphasize our strengths versus uh, the strengths of freedom and the strengths of, of pluralism and, and liberalism over the strengths that come from having an autocratic society as, as China does. And I think that 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 contrast is becoming ever clearer. So we need to up the cultural game. As I mentioned, we need to get back involved, uh, ensuring fair trade, uh, but in ensuring free trade and that we're creating uh, these communities of, of economic trading partners that are at high standards for environment and labor and, and intellectual property protection and the right, which is not, uh, and the like, which is not what's happening with, for example, the new EU uh, China uh, trade agreements, and th- th- these do not protect 
um, intellectual property rights nearly as much. They don't protect the environment. They don't protect labor. Um, it, it's hard. We have to maintain the, the military presence uh, because it is a guarantor uh, for our friends. Um, it, it allows um, smaller countries to have confidence that they can interact uh, with the world and regionally, that their ships won't be stopped on the seas, uh, that the waters and, and the, uh, the seas of Asia are open to everyone. This is, this is central. So the strategy um, is really to, uh, in many ways, it's to, it doesn't sound all that exciting, but it's to double down on the things that we've done for a long time and that we do well. But we do so in recognizing that there is a competition with China. You can't do these things without acknowledging that Beijing wants it to be different, uh, because then the the impetus for what you're doing disappears. The um, uh, the the urgency of what you're doing disappears, and so you have to recognize that we are doing it because there is an alternative vision of might makes right, of power politics, uh, or at least realpolitik, but more likely power politics uh, of of um, illiberal hierarchy in the region that we don't want to see become the norm because that's going to harm every nation in the region. And now in this context, your last essay read almost like a warning. You wrote about a future history of a Sino-American literal war, and it takes place in the very near future, 2025. Now, that's just when Biden will have just finished his first term, so it's not really very long away at all. I'm interested first in the war that you imagine and how and whether or not you see it actually coming about? Um, so the, the, the war scenario um, was one that I took from the headlines. It wasn't one that uh, I made up out of whole cloth, but instead took all of the things that have happened both between the United States and China and the security side and between China and other countries, primarily in the... Um, uh, in the South China Sea, and then simply took it a step farther and said, what if these same things that happened in 2001 or uh, 2015 or whenever, if they happened in a, in a different environment where there was a, a more uh, aggressive uh, China, a more uh, um, a Beijing that was willing to take greater risks, where there was much less trust between the United States and China, though that um, that is actually something that we're already at uh, with, with such little trust between the two sides. Uh, and then said, what would happen if uh, an accident occurred, accidents like we've already seen um, between the forces of the United States and China or China and other countries, both on the sea and in the air, and the two sides found themselves with an unwanted war. Uh, but it was a war that neither side wanted to lose, but it was also a war that neither side really wanted. Uh, and yet China was willing to take much greater risks in order to um, try to, to benefit uh, from, from that war uh, and, uh, you know, not, not simply sue for peace or say, you know, we can't, you know, we can't, um, uh, we can't do anything to defeat the United States. And in the United States, it was extremely worried uh, about escalation. Uh, in fact, as, as were the Chinese, that how do you win the war, but how do you control the war? How do you make sure that it doesn't go nuclear? How do you make sure that you don't have um, unrestrained? How do you make sure that you don't have unrestrained um, uh, cyber warfare? Um, how do you keep your allies on side? Uh, and uh, the, the scenario plays out to where it's it's difficult for the United States to maintain the position that it's had, but it's also difficult for China to take full advantage 
uh, of of its um, strengths in the region. And now, uh, given the current China-U.S. relations, can you make any predictions with regard to whether or not we are on a trajectory for war? Well, I think we're on a, we're on a trajectory for some type of accident or incident happening. We've already had them. Um, it depends on how uh, aggressive the uh, Chinese become uh, with their ships uh, shadowing U.S. ships or their planes shadowing U.S. planes. Obviously, we had the uh, EP3 uh, accident in 2001. Uh, we've had Chinese ships coming extremely close to American naval ships. Uh, of course, Chinese uh, naval ships have rammed the ships of other countries, Vietnam, for example, and sunk them. Um we are in a in a a, a, a a very dangerous period where um, we can't be sure that if an accident occurs, that both sides would be willing to back down and and indeed that whether the Chinese side uh, would back down. Uh, and I put the onus on China because uh, it's Chinese military forces that act unprofessionally that threaten. Uh, the ships and, and the planes of other nations. Uh, you know, just this past week, we've seen them send uh, warplanes and bombers and other planes into Taiwanese airspace uh, at least twice. So this is um, this is something that is uh, the bullying that we talked about before with China. Um, it's the attempt to intimidate, uh, and accidents can happen. Uh, and I think we're we're very close to that. The problem as as it plays out in the scenario is also a real life problem that we have and that there's there's very bad relations right now between Beijing and Washington. There's not a lot of trust. Um, we're going to have to see how the Biden administration approaches China. But, um, you know, the new administration isn't going to want to back down either uh, if something happens, because that will weaken it. Um, you have to consider what these what any action you take uh, does to your allies. Are you still trustworthy? Are you credible? Are they going to leave you as an ally because they don't trust you? Um, or if you go too far, uh, does that scare them as well because they don't want to get dragged into a war? All of this is is extraordinarily um, um, delicate, uh, and you have to have an incredibly delicate balancing act in order to ensure that you will maintain stability uh, with credibility, but that you can also act uh, if you need to. And so the scenario, which I tried to make as realistic as possible, there's no cyber Pearl Harbor, there's no, you know, sneak attack, it really comes out from things that are happening every day in the South China Sea or in the skies over Asia, and then walks through what each side is thinking about, because neither side wants to back down but both sides are extremely worried about escalation. And I think in the real world, that's exactly where we are. It will take only one accident uh, and, and miscommunication and confusion potentially to put us into some type of armed encounter. Uh, and that's the very worst thing that can happen between the world's two most powerful nations. And then just to bring these points together, you, you did touch on this before. What should Biden's foreign policy priorities be, either in normalizing relations with China or perhaps more significantly steering away from an accident that could escalate into a war? Well, that's that's a it's a very difficult uh, question. Um, you have to be firm, but you also have to uh, make it um, clear that you are not um, trying to, um, first of all, push China into a corner um, or or give it an excuse for taking action. 
Um, uh, I think you need to maintain your presence through things like freedom of navigation operations. Uh, I think they should be expanding the quad. I think that's very important. Uh, there should be greater intelligence sharing. First of all, getting better intelligence, making sure we really know uh, what what we think is going on, uh, sharing that with our friends uh, and our allies. Um, uh, I, I think this this sort of full court press of showing uh, that the United States is committed to the region, but committed to a, a certain vision of the region, uh, you know, a vision of liberalism and pluralism of states and nations being able to choose their own paths of peacefully settling territorial disputes and the like. All of that uh, has to be uh, the strategy that that is employed uh, because Beijing needs to recognize that if it continues this path of intimidation, if it continues uh, its influence and, and um propaganda campaigns, if it continues the espionage campaigns uh, and the like, um, that it will find itself isolated. Um, you know, that's, that is, that's not something that's going to be achieved overnight. Uh, it's not, uh, in some ways, it seems almost unrealistic given the gains that Beijing has made. Um, but every nation in the region is wary of China, and they're wary of China for good reason. Uh, they're wary because of the way it acts towards smaller nations. They're wary because of the way it acts towards nations with which it has disputes. Um, they're wary of uh, the um, the overbearing nature uh, of um, of a lot of Chinese actions. And so, even though, uh, as shown by the EU agreement, everyone still wants to trade with China, they still want part of that uh, you know part of that economic benefit. Um, they don't trust Beijing, and for very, very good reasons. So the United States has to take advantage of that, uh, but it has to do so by ensuring that it really does have a plan and that it really means what it says. It must begin with recognizing this challenge. You can't pretend that the challenge isn't there. You can't pretend that there isn't uh, a very different and uh, and illiberal view that the, the, the Communist Party has of the world of international institutions, of relations between states. And if you do that, if you're able to do that um, as, as sort of your guiding light, that you need to protect your own interests and you need to protect the interests of your partners, then I think those other things that you do have credibility and you will find ways to do them. Everything from, you know, welcoming uh, you know, more uh, Asian students to the United States to ensuring that we normalize as much as possible relations with Taiwan and make it as big a part of the international community as possible uh, to the fact that our, our military forces will be there uh, to uh, maintain freedom of navigation uh, and support uh, our friends. Because what we don't want to do is have to be forced to prove that we really mean what we say. Now, Michael, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, I'm wondering, can you just tell me a little bit about what you're working on now? Uh, well, I'm, I'm uh, going back to uh, my historical roots. Uh, I am uh, writing a book right now. Uh, I've just uh, really just, just started writing it uh, on um, America's uh, interaction with the world uh, just after independence uh, in the late 18th century and the story uh, of the first American ship to travel around the world, uh, which is a snapshot of uh, a, a world that was on the, um, the cusp of modernity, whether it was the French Revolution uh, or the consolidation 
uh, of the, uh, the the sort of high tide of Qing imperialism in China or Tokugawa, the Tokugawa shogunate in Japan, the growth of uh, British uh, hegemony uh, of the empire in India, um, of course, the, the slave trade and uh, the beginnings of the attempts to eradicate uh, the slave trade uh, in America uh, and, uh, and elsewhere. Um, it's, it's really a story of the world that America as a new nation was entering uh, and how the world was about to become modern. It sounds very important and pertinent for these times, um, and I look forward to reading that. Um, I found the essays in this book, the history essays, very engaging and very enlightening. Now, I'm Jane Richards. I've been speaking with Michael R. Oslin on the New Books in Law channel, a channel on the New Books Network. His latest book is Asia's New Politics, Essays on Reshaping the Indo-Pacific. It's published by Hoover Institution Press in 2020. Michael R. Oslin. Thank you for your time. Thank you for having me.